just about 20 minutes ago, um, I got a notification saying that there was an appointment available for me to book. Uh, this was through the Shoppers Drug Mart. Uh, they have some kind of portal where you can like enter your information and the idea is they notify you as soon as something becomes available. Hang on. If the listeners hear a clicking sound, it's because I'm, I'm typing Shoppers Drug Mart <laughs> vaccine portal uh, to, to look at that because it really is. It's like the gold rush up here trying to get this vaccine. I'll send you the link uh, to, to what I used. I mean, wait till the end of the story because it's got a disappointing okay, ending, obviously, yeah. which is why I'm bringing it up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I signed up this morning and then like, I don't know, in less than seven hours i got this notification saying there is a vaccine appointment available for you to book so like right away i I clicked on it like we're talking 10 second delay not even like just whatever time it took my eyes to like scan the like you know 30 words of text or whatever and you know it gives me some address it's like out in mississauga which you know for people who don't know toronto like if you're downtown i mean it's like uh i mean you know it would be like two hours on public transit if you could take public transit which you know i mean in theory you can but you shouldn't if you can avoid it you know maybe 40 minutes in a car 45 minutes without traffic which like there would be traffic and to walk forget about it yeah i mean not not happening like you know (laughs) five hours something like that um like out near the airport basically is where this was um but i figured whatever i'm just gonna i'm just gonna sign up i'll i'll get a ride or something and uh gone i mean Uh. just you know and it's gone i mean like i would say generously 25 30 seconds between when i clicked on it and when i tried to sign up but i think it's a good sign anyway these things are starting to be available we're actually catching up to the united states now in canada there's been like a as you say a gold rush and some people are actually uh striking it rich so hopefully soon that's one of us i mean both of us are in our early 30s and i mean i think it's like six days or something and uh maybe less than that until like it's just open everywhere for uh people 30 and up to get these vaccines i mean what's so weird right now is like we're in this very strange purgatory and perhaps people listening in in certain places will have experienced something similar where like in theory it's people 40 and up can book a vaccine appointment but you know if you're under 40 and you have certain you meet certain criteria and there's like a wide range of like health and demographic criteria and stuff like that geographic criteria uh, then you can sign up. But then there are also now, like as of last weekend, there are like these pop-up clinics mm-hmm. and things like that where like just all of a sudden, you know, these things will, will come and go and it's not really clear and like uh, what they're offering and, and when. And you know what happens too? people book their appointments and then a pop-up clinic happens and so they go get it there, but they don't cancel their appointment. So that leaves all of these pharmacies with just like all these canceled appointments. And so what happens then is they say, oh, I'm okay, well, let's just open it up to everyone. And then there's a huge Cecil B. DeMille mob scene, like within five minutes of people trying to get the vaccine. Uh, it's it's horrible. Yeah, so, so this weekend, for example, I mean, just to give you a sense of what a ridiculous patchwork this is, this weekend, um, I ended up going to, or going past, I should say, two separate pharmacies because this government portal told me that both of these pharmacies, they, they were in hot spots, but they were offering vaccines on a first come first serve basis, even if you didn't live in the hot spot, but you could get there. But the portal would not tell you whether these places were offering walk-ins or by appointment. And uh, guess what? The phone number and email address for neither of these pharmacies like is monitored or works at all. Mm-hmm. So you got to go there. 
and yeah, one of them was like already out of vaccines. I don't know for how long, and the other one was appointment only. So yeah, there's like a weird, like, it's like an Easter egg hunt going on right now. Um, although hopefully in five or six days, uh, it'll be a little more straightforward for those of us 30 and up, and then I think a few days later for uh, those of us 18 and up. Well, before we get to the meat of the episode, I'd like to talk about something that's been on my mind for no particular reason. One of my favorite topics, I don't know if it's anyone else's favorite topic, but it's come up on this show occasionally, and that is alternative media, particularly Toronto alternative media. I stumbled this week upon an old blog post from a blog called Radio Free Kanakistan. Uh, It was written in 2014, and it was memorializing one of the two alternative weeklies that we used to have in Toronto called The Grid. And, you know, when I was a kid, we had Now Magazine, And Now Magazine was this, like, independent, I believe uh, Bonnie Cher Klein was one of the people who was involved in it in its early days, who's Naomi Klein's mother and a well-known activist in her own right. Michael Hallett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very kind of lefty, very earthy, uh, very earnest. And then at some point, uh, I don't have the exact date in front of me. Oh, yes, I do. It's 1991. Uh, The Toronto Star, which is Canada's biggest newspaper started a competing alt-weekly called iWeekly, which, as this blog post outlines, uh, was was a little snarkier, a little lighter. I mean, ultimately, the two of them sort of served similar functions. Most people who picked up these papers wanted listings for events and the ads for sex work at the back, which were essentially what paid for these magazines. Page after page after page of these ads for sex work. If Toronto is a barometer for newspaper publishing in North America, then competition for readers is heating up in an already tough market. Now Magazine has dominated the weekly alternative market for years, but there's a new player in town, iWeekly, and if they can run a paper as well as they can throw a party, then we're in for a real treat. A daily newspaper can't be all things to the arts and entertainment community. There's too many things that have to be covered on a day-to-day basis. This gives us an opportunity to go and and look at the fringe entertainment, look smaller bands, smaller clubs. So do you think their aim is to share the market with you or to sort of bump you out? Organizations like Torchstar and other media organizations, only people like that, I have to say, are part of a process that is committed to the monopolization of media. They live to create one-paper markets. They cut deals to do that in cities like Ottawa and Winnipeg. They're not about sharing. I think there's room for both of us. I think we'll be quite comfortable together. Now, when I was a kid, imagine me at age 15 or 16 taking the long walk to the grocery store every week to pick up these two free weeklies because I wanted to see what was happening downtown and, and you know, maybe maybe go to something downtown. Maybe I'll, I'll take the subway and go see that that new Wong Kar Wai movie that's out. Just like just like being a grown-up. I love how you have these grizzled suburban war stories <laughs> as if any of the stuff that you're describing from your adolescence, like, that wasn't even available to me. It wasn't that downtown was some exotic, like, place <laughs> that I could get to if I got on the subway where there were alt-weeklies. Like, I remember walking through, like, Woodstock, Ontario, which was, like, the big metropole where I grew up, uh, the self-proclaimed dairy capital of Canada. And, like, you'd see the odd box for the Toronto Star or something, and I'd be like, wow, this is, I'm in the big city. They got the star. Anyway, at some point, iWeekly became the grid, which was kind of like their attempt to make it more upscale. They were specifically targeting not so much, like, 
young bohemian people downtown anymore as uh, condo dwellers. Well, yeah, people that imagine themselves to be young bohemian people, and maybe are, except they have like six-figure household incomes. We've got another magazine, like not a free magazine, one that's on glossy paper and that you can buy at the drugstore in Canada called Toronto Life. And that is unambiguously targeted at condo dwellers. Whereas the grid was, yeah, people who didn't necessarily want to identify as condo dwellers, but... They wanted to identify as, you know, young urban professionals, but not with the negative connotation that that term has. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, there, there was much that was good about the grid. A lot of good writers. The design was unbelievably beautiful, I'm sure you'll recall. Did you ever, did you ever write for the grid? Um, I wrote for it a couple times, actually. I wrote a fair amount for iWeekly because I was an intern there, believe it or not. Right. Being an unpaid intern at iWeekly was kind of a rite of passage for, like, young student newspaper people in the late 2000s and early 2010s you know <laughs> half the people you know i'm sure did an iweekly internship i i never wrote for i personally although i did write for now a couple of times in this blog post it says i didn't understand i when it first came out it consciously railed against the self-important earnest and politically sensitive now magazine I was very self-important, earnest, and politically sensitive at the time. I was far too snarky for me. It was also too drunk. Editor William Burrell appeared to revel in the mythology of Hunter Thompson and Ernest Hemingway, as much for their lifestyle as their writing. Hero worship of either is a major turnoff for me. And yet I realized I provided a valuable counterpoint. He goes on to say, I was the scrappy underdog, ironic, of course, considering it had corporate funding, while now was the up from the bootstraps capitalist success story. In now, everything felt important. In I, everything felt fun. The city needed both. And then after iWeekly turned into The Grid, he writes, The Grid was a considerably different magazine. It was also beautiful. For three years, the International Society for News Design named it one of the best design newspapers in the world. Its editors left jobs at much higher profile magazines to shape the grid. But arts coverage was slowly clawed back. Food, fashion, family, and condo life took over. It was increasingly hard to tell Toronto life and the grid apart. It certainly wasn't trying to compete with now anymore. Not necessarily a bad thing, but now is no longer an essential read either. One could argue that Toronto lost both its alt-weeklies a while ago. That also has as much to do with the blurred line between what was once a decidedly alternative culture and a monolithic mainstream. Is there anything at all in an alt-weekly you don't also read in a daily paper? Don't even get this dinosaur started on ye old internet, the great destroyer. The opinions expressed in alt-weeklies used to matter. They used to spark discussion. They used to define a community. Now they're just part of the noise. Now, I'm sure this is me talking again. Now, I'm sure there's a lot that one could quibble with in there if one wanted to. I mean, one could uh, point to lots of wonderful stuff that's been published in Now Magazine. One can point to lots of talented writers or this or that. But the, gentri the gentrification of, of the media and the encroachment of that phenomenon on, on alt-weeklies, which were, you know, supposedly sort of the alternative to the sort of gentrified mainstream, like that's a very real thing. And, it, you know, this is not just something that happened in Toronto. I'm sure, uh, you know, people listening in cities everywhere can identify with with this to some degree yeah so you know if there if there's anyone who worked or works for one of these papers who's listening now you know please don't take this personally because you know i i love alternative media and i consider myself kind of a buff of toronto's alternative media that's from my adult lifetime but when he talks about how it feels like this stuff doesn't spark discussion anymore kind of the the legacy alternative media if you will doesn't spark discussion anymore like i feel that and 
I'm not sure entirely what to attribute that to. I don't know, you know, like the easy thing is to say, well, it's the internet. You can get hot takes all over the internet. You can get all sorts of different kinds of takes. And the internet has obviously taken a huge bite out of the old funding models for these magazines, such as, you know, the sex work ads, for instance, have almost entirely migrated to the internet. Well, but also if you're going to make money from advertising, you know, you're going to try to attract big advertisers. And and if you try to attract bigger advertisers, you know, you're going to attract the audiences for those advertisers as well. Because ultimately with any kind of free media that's funded by advertising, the readership is in some sense the product. Mm -hmm. And so if you fund your, you know, newspaper, or magazine or whatever it is with, you know, ads for car companies or luxury consumer products or whatever, you know, you're going to attract a clientele and your your editorial content is probably going to bend around the interests of a clientele that's uh, in the market for those things. So, you know, looking back on the grid, it almost seems like it was doomed to fail because it's not alternative anymore. It's consciously going after a sort of bougier audience. In fact, I believe the grid did away with the sex work ads that were very common in iWeekly. Um, but then if it's not alternative anymore, then what is it? Like, we've already got Toronto Life. So I don't know. I mean, what I, I guess what I'm talking myself into is realizing that, like, the decline of these places is inevitable, because on the one hand, all of the advertising sources that would have created a genuinely alternative media organization like this, one that's, like, kind of genuinely pugnacious and genuinely challenging of the status quo, quote unquote, that's all dried up. And so it can kind of no longer exist in that form anymore, can it? I think that could well be true. I have to say, and I guess I'll, I'll preface this by kind of issuing a you know similar caveats to, to what you did, which is, you know, yeah, no shade, uh, you know, against anybody who's writing or working for these kinds of publications. There's still lots of good stuff happening there. We're talking sort of more broadly and, and kind of in terms of overall trajectory than anything else. But, you know, my own brief experience with writing for now, you know, about politics was that, you know, often it seemed like what was wanted was, you know, fairly generic takes about national politics, at least for me. Like the horse race stuff, you mean? I mean, not quite. But but yeah, that's the general that's the general idea. And, uh, you know, I wrote a few things that, that I think were fun, but um I don't know if there was enough to kind of distinguish that from, you know, stuff that I might be asked to write, you know, elsewhere by, by less alternative publications. And we've lost the trust of working people, particularly in places like Hartlepool. I intend to do whatever is necessary to fix that. What will you do? Because some people in your party are going to say you need to move more towards the Jeremy Corbyn agenda, others away from it. This is not a question of left or right. It's a question of whether we're facing the country. We have changed as a party, but we've not made a strong enough case to the country. We've lost that connection, that trust, and I intend to rebuild that and do whatever is necessary to rebuild that trust. But what does change mean in, say, policy terms? It means stopping as a party, quarrelling amongst ourselves, looking internally and facing the country and setting out that bold vision for a better Britain and Sorry, changing what, the things that, that need vision? changing. What is that, that vision? Is the change that I will bring about. Uh, Len McCluskey, United General Secretary, says people don't know what you stand for. What is that vision? Our vision is of a country that ends the injustice and inequality that millions of people face every day. But fundamentally, we have to show that we are facing the country, that we've learned the lessons 
of this bitterly disappointing set of results. Well, this is another Britain-themed episode, and we will get to our uh, our movie in a little bit. But uh, I wrote a long piece, which I think should be out by the time this airs, uh, a piece about Keir Starmer and what's been going on inside the Labour Party, which has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, my friends at Navarra have been doing broadcasts almost every single night because there's been so much for them to cover. And I have to say... It's very nice to see uh, my friends on the British left uh, having fun again, cracking a smile. Uh, and boy, recent events have really uh, have. Re- I mean, you know, in many ways, what's going on is, you know, it's tragic. It's awful. But it's also, you know, I think in many ways, a vindication of what uh, a lot of people on the left felt and expressed either publicly or privately throughout the past year, you know, that this Starmer leadership, whatever its kind of pretensions to be something else, you know, was not going to embrace anything like uh, the Labour Manifesto of 2019, let alone the Labour Manifesto of 2017, um, that its kind of original pitch, which was, you know, we're going to give you a Corbynism without Corbyn or something like that. We're going to give you a Corbynism that's really good at Westminster and is media friendly and um, and whatever, um, and, you know, is, is forensic at uh, Prime Minister's questions or whatever. I, I always thought that was uh, bullshit, and I think it was especially clear how much it was bullshit when Starmer started going to war uh, in public with the membership when he fired Rebecca Long-Bailey from the shadow cabinet over an innocuous tweet, um, you know, let alone what happened to Corbyn himself. But, uh, you know, I was absolutely fascinated with what happened in the wake of these disastrous uh, results in the local elections last week and the by-election in Hartlepool. Um, I was following Keir Starmer's media tour very closely. I don't know if you saw any clips of his interview on the BBC, but it was extraordinary. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Yes. Yeah. So, so, I mean, look, Starmer was asked, I mean, pretty straightforward questions on the BBC about these results. And it was, it was fascinating to watch him just kind of going around in circles, tossing out these like verbal circumlocutions, these rhetorical cul-de-sacs that don't mean anything where he'd say like, we've changed as a party. We've, uh, we've not made a strong case. And then he'd be asked like, like, well, what uh, what case do you need? What will you be making? And he's like, uh, we will be making the strong case that needs to be made that that setting out that bold vision for a better Britain, you know, and the interview would say, well, Sir Keir, what's that vision? And he'd say, well, we're going to, you know, I mean, the direct quote that everybody was making fun of rightly was when he said, you know, he's going to be changing the things that need changing. And that is the change that I will bring about. So he went he went round and round uh, on that for a few minutes. And I found uh, an interview actually that Owen Jones did with this, uh, this guy, Paul Williams, who was Labour's candidate in Hartlepool. He's a, a former Labour MP, I think just for two years. There was some controversy about a paid trip he did to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. He's He's got a background as a GP. And I mean, in this interview, he comes off sympathetic enough in that he's completely unable to provide any answers. But ultimately, you know, that's something that trickles down, you know, from above and is kind of a reflection of what's coming from above. So, you know, Owen is asking him, like, Owen straight up says, don't use any platitudes uh, when you answer this what's labor's vision for the country and then he even issues like further he says you know don't say fairness don't say everything being nice what concretely is the vision and then you know this poor guy paul williams just goes off about you know the best companies invest here uh they because we have the best trained people and you know we need to give kids the best start in life i mean it's 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 remarkable there's nothing he has to offer 
that is not something a Tory politician could say. I mean, who's against like a local community attracting good human talent or good jobs? So I don't know. I got to thinking about, you know, like the obvious reading, right, of the Starmer interview anyway, is that, you know, he's sleep deprived. It's just like it's a car crash interview. Uh, so he's just falling back on a bunch of talking points or whatever. And I think that can all be true. But it got me thinking about what are the sort of deep roots of this kind of centrist non-belief, if you want to call it that. Like, what's the genealogy of like the total lack of vision that has defined the Starmer leadership? And I think to some extent defines centrism today in general. On the last episode on our Patreon, you made the case that the kind of 90s centrists, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, they had real zeal. They were real ideologues. And you no longer see that zeal anymore. It seems to be kind of like running on autopilot. Um, and, and I'm uncertain to what degree that's just because the words associated with it, like the market, don't test very well anymore. You know, to what extent they really are ideologues in disguise still, and to what extent they're just sort of uh, don't know what they believe anymore. I, I'm assuming you've maybe come to a bit more of a conclusion on this. Well, yeah, I mean, these are exactly the kinds of questions that I was interested in, in thinking through, and, and the, they are the ones that I ended up exploring in the piece. Something that I think can be true is that, you know, you can be a, a passive ideologue, a sort of dispenser of, of dead dogma, or you can be, you know, an active ideologue. Somebody with genuine zeal and a political project that you're pursuing. I think the latter applies to the Blairites, and I think the former applies to, you know, most centrists today. I just want to read you a few lines from a speech Tony Blair gave in 1998. This is a famous speech where he laid out principles of uh, the so-called third way. You know, and to be clear, I don't agree that it was correct at the time, and I certainly don't think it's correct now. But Try to imagine any among sort of our current crop of centrist politicians giving a speech with this much clarity and conviction for a particular project. So Tony Blair said in the speech, My vision for the 21st century is of a popular politics reconciling themes which in the past have wrongly been regarded as antagonistic. Patriotism and internationalism, rights and responsibilities, the promotion of enterprise and the attack on poverty and discrimination. Human nature is cooperative as well as competitive, selfless as well as self-interested, and society could not function if it was otherwise. The grievous 20th century error of the fundamentalist left was the belief that the state could replace civil society and thereby advance freedom. The new right veers to the other extreme, advocating wholesale dismantling of core state activity in the cause of freedom. The truth is that freedom for the many requires strong government. A key challenge of progressive politics is to use the state as an enabling force, protecting effective communities and voluntary organizations and encouraging their growth to tackle new needs in partnership as appropriate. These are the values of the third way. So one explanation for, you know, why is it that Tony Blair in 1998 sounds like that and Keir Starmer is saying stuff like, I will change the things that need changing and that is the change that I will bring about. You know, the obvious explanation, right, is Tony Blair is a much better politician. And I think that's, I mean, you can't can't have watched Keir Starmer over the past year and uh, not think that that's the case. But Tony Blair existed in a context and Keir Starmer exists in a context too. Like Tony Blair probably wouldn't get very good results with a speech like that right now. 
either. Right. And I take it even further. I mean, Tony Blair, if he existed now as a present day political figure, would be incapable of giving a speech like that. Like the political and material conditions that produced a speech like that from a neoliberal social democrat like Tony Blair in the 1990s, like they no longer exist. And so I think one of the things that's happened, and I suppose this is how I really explain Starmer's hollowness in the piece. You know, one of the things that's happened is that, you know, the New Labor project in, in, you know, many respects succeeded. I mean, you know, New Labor became, you know, the kind of second stage of a Thatcherite duopoly that set Britain on the course towards where it is today. It's a a society where the market kind of encroaches upon everything. There's also a fair bit of social liberalism with more than a smidgen of cultural revanchism kind of thrown into the mix in the political consensus. And so once a project like this basically succeeds or succeeds in its broadest ambitions, what is there for its contemporary adherents to do? And, And more importantly, what is there to do at all once you accept the basic premises of kind of the neoliberal consensus? Once you accept that the state has this particular role that's quite expansive when it comes to things like policing and surveillance and things like that, and quite limited when it comes to welfare functions, which are, you know, increasingly means tested and things like that. When you give up trying to change a society in any kind of large scale way, you know, the sphere of political contestation kind of collapses. So if you're if you're a Keir Starmer or, you know, I mentioned in the piece, you know, the labor leadership contest in 2015 in kind of the early stages, you know, before Corbyn was at any of the hustings before he got in the mix. And, you know, you basically had a bunch of labor politicians, some of whom kind of sounded a bit more right wing, some of whom sounded a bit more like they were on the center left. I mean, basically what they were competing over is what story do you tell about a type of society to which all of us, you know, broadly agree on? A political consensus that none of us are really going to challenge anyway. Of all these characters who are auditioning to be front and center in the spectacle of national politics, you know, which of them has the best personal story or which of them tells the most compelling national story about a bunch of stuff that is broadly agreed upon anyway? All of this also has pretty major strategic implications, right? The problem with Starmer not being able to answer questions about what his vision is, it's not just not just a question of not being able to articulate a vision, it's that without a vision, there's not really, you know, it's hard to imagine any kind of route back to power in which some kind of political vision or program is not in conversation with a strategy for bringing it about, if that makes sense. And, you know, Starmer uh, has seemed to mostly think the problem the Labour Party has, you know, it's not about structural decline or anything like that. It's a kind of a question of branding. So, you know, he's had all this stuff about we just need to be patriotic. We need to uh, we need to sing God Save the Queen and we need to, you know, wrap ourselves in the flag. Uh, And that's how we win back these, uh, you know, seats in the north of England and the so-called Red Wall that we've lost. I won't expound too much on what's wrong with that. If people are Patreon subscribers, they can go back and listen to uh, the interview I did with John Trickett, who's a Labour MP from West Yorkshire, who had a tremendous amount to say about what was wrong with that analysis. Anyway, the piece should be out by the time this airs and people can read it. But I guess just to put a coda on this, I think the lesson is that if a liberal or centrist politician in your country sounds like they don't have a vision, it's not just because, you know, the the caliber of individual politicians has, you know, fallen over the past 20 or 30 years. It's not just that a Keir Starmer or, I don't know, a 
Beto O'Rourke or whoever it is, is individually unable to articulate a real political vision, even though they are. It's that the model of politics they, they've embraced essentially precludes them from doing so. The hollowness is structural. What then is one to make of the electoral success of Joe Biden, who, notwithstanding the emerging narrative that he's actually more progressive than you think, right. really is an ideologue for third-way politics, an enthusiastic, lifelong ideologue for it, made it central to his 2020 campaign, and is quite widely beloved still. Yeah, I mean, I would say Joe Biden is actually an ideologue for like a type of centrist politics that's even more retrograde and goes back to like democratic machine politics in the 1970s. But there's no need to be pedantic about this. I think you're right. I mean, I think the answer to that question is pretty simple. The United States has a presidential system where there's two candidates. And I mean, you know, uh, one of them was Donald Trump. One of them was Donald Trump. Um, and Donald Trump was never popular. Either. But but hang on, there, there was a Democratic primary before that, where he was, give or take John Hickenlooper, probably the least, and Michael Bloomberg, <laughs> the least progressive candidate on offer. Yeah, I mean, we could get into a whole conversation. I don't think people listening want, want, want to hear me relitigate the Democratic primary, but I think the simple and straightforward answer to everything contained within your question is Donald Trump. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> Donald Trump and an electoral system where you have two candidates, and one of them was Donald Trump, and in which Biden, despite what everyone says, you know, basically kind of scraped by anyway, and, uh, you know, give or take a bit of voter suppression, and a few people staying home in a few states or a few thousand votes flipped here and there would have lost. I believe the way things are is not the way things have to be. It's going to be a hung parliament. Tie, where's my tie? Why is the Labour vote that high? And the shock of the night is the Liberal Democrats on 59 seats. We've come down. What happened to the Lib Dems? Fuck! Every time you give them a chance to change, it's better than double you know. Can David Cameron pave the way to number 10? Mr Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I must be honest with you, I'm not quite Prime Minister yet. All eyes are on Mr Clegg right now. So we have to offer a strong alternative, a coalition with the Liberals. Gus, we're coming in. You're what? Gordon's still Prime Minister. Technically. Not technically, actually. Let's turn this into an opportunity. If we ally with the Lib Dems, we can share the blame. People expect us to be ruthless. They'll be seen as traitors. Well, our movie on this episode is the 2015 made-for-TV fact-based drama Coalition about the unlikely coalition <laughs> government between Prime Minister David Cameron of the Tories and Nick Clegg of the Liberal Democrats following the 2010 United Kingdom election that uh, left the system hanging in the balance when no party had enough seats to declare a majority. Um, and, you know, this is far from the worst movie we've watched for this podcast. It's, you know, par for the course. It is a completely workmanlike uh, yeah. rendering of these events from a bunch of actors who play the roles perfectly competently and, uh, you know, give these events a whiff of middle-brow drama. Yeah, definitely. Um, that being said, uh, this is my least favorite kind of movie that we talk about on this podcast. Really? I... I hate fact-based made-for-TV <laughs> dramas about recent history, especially political history. This movie is better in 
always than a Dinesh D'Souza documentary. And yet I would much rather watch a Dinesh D'Souza documentary than one of these. Like there's blood <laughs> flowing through the veins of one of those. You'd rather, you'd rather watch a Dinesh, like Dinesh D'Souza's like seventh movie in four years. That's like, did you know the Democrats invented racism? Let me introduce you to a man named Saul Alinsky. <laughs> and then the audience just starts hooting and hollering because Saul's back. <laughs> well, so before I'm interested in this. So before, uh, before we discuss, the film coalition you know why is it that you think you hate this kind of thing uh, so much yeah um let me see if i can articulate it because i think it's partly irrational but all of these movies have at least one scene where your lead politician character whether it's tony blair whether it's nick clegg tony blair's not in the movie but okay well he's in most of these movies though <laughs> always played by michael sheen <laughs> there's always one of these scenes where the lead character is like uh, sitting in his kitchen and talking to his wife like a normal person while the kids are milling about and they're just doing these exposition dumps. They're like, oh, goodness, uh, the, the newspapers say that I'm more popular than Churchill. <laughs> they, they're saying that, that we could get as many as 50 more seats in Parliament. <laughs> oh, yes, but, but how long does this last? We do know that political fortunes often flip on a dime. I, and, or, you know, there will be like the sympathetic wife character, not heavily present in this one, but... The sympathetic wife character who's like folding laundry while the Tony Blair or whoever, you know, has some crisis of conscience. And, you know, she I don't know it's it's makes me cringe so much. These people, even if they're not on Epstein's plane, you know, they should be on Epstein's plane. Well, they do have a guy playing Peter Mandelson in this movie who, if nothing else, was friends with Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, that a, a fact people have been uh reminding everyone of uh, in the wake of his own uh, involvement with Keir Starmer. I also just hate how rigorously nonpartisan all of these movies are. Yes. I mean, especially this one. Issues such as tuition reform or voting reform or the environment or taxes are just thrown around like uh, chess pieces on a chessboard. <laughs> and these movies always conceptualize these real life figures just in terms of TV drama types. It's like, well, you've got you've got the old dog from the Labour Party, you know, <laughs> like the, you know, the, the, the lion of Parliament. And uh, he's up against this this bry cleaned empty suit, it seems, by the name of Nick Clegg. But wait a minute, maybe Nick Clegg is it's a bit of a dynamic figure. Um, and then you've kind of got David Cameron <laughs> caught in the middle, ironically. <laughs> oh, man. Well, everything you're saying, I mean, I agree. Um, uh, you know, a film like this is obviously very paint by the numbers, but this is the exact reason I wanted to watch it. A film like this captures the exact received wisdom about a particular event. In this case, the 2010 UK general election, beginning with the famous TV debate, Britain's first sort of presidential-style TV debate, which I watched live at the time, by the way, uh, which Nick Clegg was perceived to have won. You know, we had Gordon Brown saying, I agree I agree with Nick and things like that. Possibly Cameron said that too, I don't remember. Uh, the Lib Dems shot up in the polls, uh, and then afterwards, you know, the election actually produced a pretty uh, generic result, despite Clegg mania, uh, which many of us in one way or another were, were sort of caught up in. The Liberal Democrats lost <laughs> seats. Um, you know, they got, uh, I think, maybe a 1% or 2% swing up from their previous election, but extremely poor election results. Despite, I, I learned from this film that Nick Clegg was perceived for a time as more 
more popular than Churchill. Apparently there were polls showing that. That's right. Well, I mean, the Liberal Democrats did register at least in a handful of polls. Like, they, you know, they were first in the polls. And so, you know, I have a personal relationship to these events, as I've already alluded to. This was the first UK general election that I followed really closely. And I was very caught up in all of this, uh, including the, you know, the main thing that's documented in the film, which is the negotiations, you know, which ultimately led to the formation of this ultimately grotesque Tory Liberal Democrat coalition government. But what you hate about this genre of film and what I love, uh, ironically, so I suppose I hate as well, is how, you know, yeah, as you say, all these all these actual issues, like, you know, the dramatic stakes are so, so high. Like the whole thing thrives on like what's going to happen. Like, you know, these are these are flawed people in like these moral quandaries, you know, what's going to come out of it. But then the actual stakes, which is, you know, the issues themselves, like which you've, you've already said this are just this kind of like vague soup. You know, they're like these kind of uh, trading cards that the characters are passing around. (laughs) Like, there's no sense that any of this actually matters. The whole second half of this movie is about, is poor Gordon Brown going to have to resign for nothing? Is Nick Clegg going to feel a a pang in his conscience as he betrays (laughs) that honorable, decent man, Gordon Brown? (laughs) Um, And and I I really don't care. And I I (laughs) really resent anything that tries to make me care about. A bit more background on the uh, on the election and the results. So uh, Gordon Brown had taken over from Tony Blair in 2007. And actually for a time, it was either 2006 or 2007, I believe 2007. And uh, there had been this plan to call a general election right away because when Brown took over, it looked like Labour was going to uh, win another majority. And the decision to uh, abort that election call seems to have basically sunk Brown and completely doomed him. He never recovered from that. Something I was surprised they didn't mention in the film is that I think the day before this uh, TV debate, which uh, which begins the movie, Brown had actually had this, I mean, it was, you know, discussed as a gaffe. I mean, there'd been this incident where, you know, I guess he'd been stumping and he was talking to this voter who started complaining about immigrants. And, you know, I don't know, he handled the situation. I mean, I haven't watched the clip for years, but my memory was that he handled it reasonably well. He kind of politely pushed back on some of the stuff she said while sort of maintaining a a respectful tone or, you know, of the kind that's expected of politicians like Brown when they're on the doorstep. But then when he got back in the car, the prime ministerial car, he was still mic'd up and he started, you know, saying to one of his aides, you know, well, that was a disaster. There's this bigoted woman I was just talking to who says she used to vote Labour. Brown had to address this in the TV debate. I mean, I remember that was the moment um, in that campaign when I thought, you know, Labour really is going to lose. But so the the results themselves, I mean, God, this this election in retrospect is so funny. At the time, it felt like such kind of high drama. It felt like so high stakes. There were all these twists and turns. Despite Clegmania, despite the, uh, you know, I, I mean, I want to say, I don't think Clegg was just getting comparisons to Churchill. There were probably, you know, if you searched, you'd, you'd probably find comparisons to like JFK, like just Christ himself. Yeah, I mean, ba- I mean, basically, it was it was completely over the top. And yet the results of the election were so utterly generic. I mean, Labour actually won one of its lowest vote shares, I think something like 29%. Maybe its lowest vote share, going back from today, like like a lower vote share than 2019, 
maybe lower than 1983, although or or about the same. I'd have to look that up. But it was it was a disaster in terms of the votes, but not the seats. So in it, you ended up having this uh, this hung parliament in which the Tories, you know, got I don't know 307 seats or something like that. And then you had these coalition negotiations that ultimately produced what was just I mean it's just a Tory government anyway. So like in retrospect, all the drama was basically artifice. And I I don't know uh, for me anyway, and I suspect for some lefties in in Britain who may be listening. Um, you know, this was a very formative episode for me because the whole Clegmania thing, I mean, it was pretty much a textbook case of the sort of like politically nebulous liberal mania that today I find myself writing about all the time. You know, why was it that Nick Clegg and the Liberal Democrats, briefly anyway, became these kind of ultimate catch-all political ciphers? And, you know, the Lib Dems, for those who are outside of Britain or don't know, I mean, they were an incredibly vague, ideologically hodgepodge political party. Under their previous leader, Charles Kennedy, they'd opposed the Iraq War, you know, unlike the leadership of the Labour Party. So, you know, in the new Labour era, they'd sort of become like left-leaning cousins, for example, would support the Liberal Democrats in like 2009 because they were perceived anyway, and in some cases were to the left of the Labour Party. They had these like social Democrats who were part of the Lib Dems. But then they also had these like small L liberals who just like were really into markets. They were also a home to all kinds of like Europhiles who were like absolutely obsessed with the European Union. They were this total hodgepodge and that allowed them to be a catch-all. Anyway, you know, in saying all this, it's very funny because like even that, you know, it amounted to nothing. It's not like, you know, it's it's the kind of thing you say in retrospect when a political party has won something. The Liberal Democrats didn't even win. I mean, the film, I mean, the film rather hilariously uh, based on kind of the title cards that appear at the end. uh, You know, it's like uh, the well, the the government uh, held together for five years and uh, (laughs) against all odds. And on May the 5th, 2015, we go back to the polls. And dramatically speaking, you know, the sort of final dramatic coda is like, What's going to happen is, you know, are Clegg's critics within his own party who are mad that he's going into coalition with the Tories, are they going to be vindicated? You know, what's going to happen? And I mean, I would definitely say we're vindicated in terms of the policy results. You know, every Lib Dem uh, MP or possibly every Lib Dem candidate signed a National Union of Students pledge saying they'd never vote to raise tuition fees and coalition government tripled tuition fees. You know, their big cause celebra was electoral reform. Uh, they got a referendum on AV, the alternative vote, which is not even a very good or like particularly proportional electoral system. It's like, you know, ranked ballots, basically Uh, a referendum, which they promptly lost uh, very decisively. Uh, And then in the following elections in 2015, the Lib Dems went from 57 seats to uh, eight and Nick Clegg, uh, (laughs) Nick Clegg just barely hung on to his own seat, which he then lost in 2017 as his successor, Tim Farron captured a whopping 12 seats. And then I think in uh, 2019, they went down one and they got 11 seats. My memory may be slightly off, but that was basically the trajectory. So what's so funny about the kind of normie political storytelling in this case is, you know, for all the sort of high drama that it inserts into the story, all of it basically came to nothing. It was the most like middle of the middle of the middle election result ever. And it produced, you know, exactly the kind of Tory government that one expects a Tory government to be. I mean, the film, uh, like I said, presents the received wisdom on these events, but also very much presents the received wisdom on on these characters. I mean, David Cameron, whose kind of self-presentation was that he was this modernizer, you know, he, you know, was like, 
the Cameron era was like, stop calling us Tories. We're conservatives. We're gonna ch- we're we're gonna be really into the environment. We're gonna accept same sex marriage. Um, we're gonna change the Tory logo so that it's a picture of a tree because we're rooted in the earth and we're all about volunteerism. You know, the big society that was their whole big idea. You know, we're gonna replace the state with people volunteering out of the goodness of their hearts. It was supposed to be this kind of you know compassionate conservatism. You know, and it just basically yielded more than five years of brutal austerity. You know, you have uh, you have Nick Clegg, who's kind of portrayed as a modernizer, I suppose, in his own right. You know, he's an idealistic figure who's caught in this moral dilemma. And who is the unambiguous hero of the film, I would say. Yeah, I would say. And, and the kind of tension with his character is that, you know, Patty Ashdown, the, uh, the former liberal Democrat leader, you know, has all these reservations about going into coalition with the Tories. And the, you know, the arc of the story is that Patty Ashdown has to overcome his inhibitions. You know, uh, Clegg is getting yelled at by... By, uh, the Lib Dem caucus and then you know Patty Ashdown comes in and he's like you know I came here to tell you to turn it down but you've achieved something that none of us ever you know that, that oh, I could God. never do I, I this this is an example of why I hate this kind of movie because it's grafting all of this like inspirational sports movie scenes onto recent political history oh you know what else I hate that's in all these movies is a scene where the protagonist is like in the bathroom you know washing his hands and drying it on a paper towel you know presumably having just taken a massive dump that we don't get to see and then somebody was in the stall next to him and it's like the elder statesman or or his, or his rival or someone like that who as they're washing their hands together because the bathroom is a neutral space uh it's where people can speak with immunity the rival or whoever says uh you know um let me tell you the real thing that's happening at that meeting out there you see i i i'm gonna read between the lines for you and kind of set you straight goodbye and then he walks out leaving leaving the hero still washing his shit-covered hands (laughs) in front of the mirror. Can can I just say, though, this is a digression, but when I worked at provincial parliament, like, the the washrooms were this kind of, like, neutral spit. That was the only place where, like, a Tory MPP ever talked to me, and they would always try to, like, you know, they all that, I mean, they would always try to strike up, but they would try either try to strike up a conversation about, like, last night's hockey game, or they would try to make some crack, you know, some kind of, like, politically neutral crack about, like, a sort of get a load of this about, like, whatever was going on in parliament at that at the time <laughs> all right i'm gonna put my words on a plate and eat them no you're um, you're, you're right it's uh it's it's very silly and all these movies seem to have exactly this type of scene but so the film you know portrays clegg as you know he's an idealist or whatever but then it tries to portray like what he does is idealistic like him just basically capitulating to the tories and ultimately going on to rubber stamp a policy agenda that he just spent years uh contesting allegedly uh that's supposed to be heroic because it's like oh well the lib dem showed they were serious they could be grown-ups and they could yeah they could go into government all right let's tell the folks a little bit about how we got to that point because the election happens in the film huge disappointment for nick clegg but also a huge opportunity for him because both the tories and labor are now uh, beating down his door competing against each other to see who can get him as the junior partner in their coalition government we see the negotiations the conservatives are the front runners because ultimately they got the most votes and the most seats nick clegg cares very much about democracy so of course he wants to support that however as the film presents it the tories are perhaps just a little bit too ideologically far from the lib dems (laughs) the lib dems key pillars are cutting taxes well of course that's something they can maybe find some some area of agreement on uh but also voting reform and europe 
Europe doesn't come up a great deal, but voting reform is a big bone of contention. There's nothing in it for the Tories. Meanwhile, in this movie's narrative, Labour would seem the most uh, logical bedfellow. In, in, in the real world as well, I would say, at least based on what the Liberals had just spent the past few years uh, campaigning on. A center-left coalition. However, public opinion is not on Labour's side. Labour did receive fewer votes. And Gordon Brown is clearly a dead man walking, even if he doesn't know it. So key to the negotiation is that if the Lib Dems are to get in bed with Labour, Gordon Brown must announce a timeline for his departure. Meanwhile, as you alluded to, Nick Clegg feels his idealism running up against cold, hard reality. This comes in particular on the issue of tuition fees, one of their biggest campaign pledges. The Lib Dems now have a shot at power, a shot at genuinely influencing policy, and Clegg realizes that to do this, he must give up some of those pie-in-the-sky ambitions. (laughs) Like not tripling tuition fees. (laughs) (laughs) He has also, for the very first time, read the reports. Yes, the reports that show that there is no money. There is no money uh, <laughs> for his tuition promises. And and you know what? Maybe it isn't the right thing to offload tuition costs for the well-off kids who go to school <laughs> onto the less well-off taxpayers who can't afford school anyway. In a progressive society, only rich kids can go to Oxford or Cambridge. <laughs> Our key pillars are cutting the low rate of tax. Cutting tax, we can work with that. Look, Nick, whatever the Tories are offering, you know we can beat it. And then, of course, voting reform. Labour will offer it to them. Well, they're not talking to Labour. Talking to us. Nick. In terms of your title, we just commit to you as our Deputy Prime Minister. I think he was trying to flatter me with a title. It's going to take more than that. This leads to a nail-biting conclusion when, even after Gordon Brown has announced his imminent retirement in hopes of luring Nick Clegg Brown realizes that the writing is on the wall, and uh, I, I'm not sure how you would describe it. He sort of uh, he sort of concedes defeat, which I gather is more or less what really happened. And the film ends with this enormous intra-party controversy among the Lib Dems, which, as you say, is smoothed over pretty quickly in in the heroic sports movie <laughs> finale. And it ends on a feel-good note, you know? Most people didn't predict this union of the center-left and the right could withstand the summer. Uh, and yet here we are, five years later, we've beaten the odds. You know, a, a good thing has lasted. And, you know, one character says that our entire system is devised so that this wouldn't happen, but but here we are. And and that's that's kind of a beautiful thing, isn't it? You know? Yeah, would you believe that uh, you know, two public school boys who are just different kinds of liberals were able to uh, you know, get over their differences? Cameron a blue liberal, uh, Nick Clegg an orange book liberal. Uh, can you believe that they are able to put aside their differences and deliver that that moving press conference in the Rose Garden? Because I can. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to talk about this Rose Garden for a minute because uh, this is another one of those things where when I think back of like formative moments in my, uh, you know, kind of adult political life when I realized that progressive liberalism is a mirage. I mean, this has got to be one of them. I mean, obviously, it's something that was kind of colored by, you know, what the coalition government did after in terms of rubber stamping all these cuts and the betrayal on tuition fees and the rest of it. But, you know, if you go back and you revisit the Rose Garden uh, press conference, you know, Nick Clegg and David Cameron instantly get along 
very, very well. And they are taking pains to emphasize, like, our parties actually come from these similar, you know, we have, like, deep, we're, we have roots in the same traditions and all this kind of stuff. The Dave and Nick show, that's what people were calling it uh, at the time. You know, this was not the Liberal Democrats offering the Tories some kind of, you know, here are five conditions in which we'll give you support via confidence and supply or something like that. But, you know, we're not going to support you in these cuts or whatever. This was the Liberals signing up to endorse uh, or at least enable most of the Tory agenda so that Nick Clegg could get to call himself Deputy Prime Minister, which is, you know, like barely a real thing anyway. He actually he actually later got in trouble where he made some crack about how like when Cameron was on a foreign trip or whatever, he made some crack about how he'd forgotten that he was running the country. De- deputy to the prime minister. Yeah, yeah. Assistant to the regional manager. I mean, that was literally that's literally what it was. But yeah, the liberals didn't get anything out of this arrangement. They did not get their agenda through at all. Even, you know, they, they got this uh, chaotic referendum on a not particularly good version of electoral reform, which they overwhelmingly lost. Uh, and then they faced electoral wipeout in the subsequent three elections. Uh, anyway, I wish Nick Clegg all the best in his current role at Facebook. <laughs> Prime Minister, do you now regret when once asked what your favorite joke was, you replied Nick Clegg and Deputy Prime Minister, what do you think of that? <laughs> I, we're all going you to have. I, I'm afraid I did oh, once. Right. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, we're all. Come back. We're all going to have um, things that we said um, thrown back at us. And, and you know, there's a serious point in this, which is, if you want to spend the next five years finding Lib Dem politicians who slightly disagree with Conservative politicians about this or a slightly nuanced policy, you can find lots. But we're looking at the bigger picture. We're looking at what a bold move like this with a strong, stable government can achieve. And if it means swallowing some humble pie, and if it means eating some of your words, I cannot think of a more excellent diet in which to provide the country with good government. I don't know. I will say that one thing I unironically like about a film like this, which, I mean, this, I suppose, just like whatever part of me still has like a bit of like my old like normie politico thing. in. like, I do kind of get a kick out of seeing actors play these like figures that I remember these kind of like secondary political figures from like 2010 British politics. Like there's like they, they have a guy who like does Peter Mandelson's accent pretty well. You get you, you know you kind of get the received wisdom on Peter Mandelson, which is like, uh, you know, well, he's a he's a bit of a snake, but he sure as hell gets the job done. He's he's a real he's a real prince of darkness. You know, there's an actress that plays Harriet Harman. They found some bald guy to play William Hague. They found some guy to play uh, future chancellor and uh, uh, evening standard editor George Osborne. They, they, there's, there's, there's some guy that plays a uh, future shadow chancellor and uh, best known now as a Twitter meme, Ed Balls. Uh, you, know, you get to see all this stuff. And I got to say that uh, that still tickles me. I'm quite sympathetic <laughs> to that, actually. There are, cer- there are certain biopics over the years. Like if you've got a biopic about like somebody who I know about, like, for example, uh, if you show me Richard Attenborough's film Chaplin and, and you know, I can spend the whole movie going, ooh, it's uh, Kevin Klein as Douglas Fairbanks. <laughs> Isn't that fun? <laughs> Oh, wait, oh, here, here, here's that, uh, here's that historical event that's in all the books, and here it's being acted out in a really fake way. That's fun. Yeah, I guess here it's it's the same thing, although it's, instead it's like, oh, here's Chris Lark, here's some guy called Chris Larkin as Danny Alexander. Now we're in a very fluid political situation with no party enjoying an absolute majority. As I've said before, it seems to me in a situation like this. It's vital that all political parties 
all political leaders act in the national interest and not out of narrow party political advantage. I've also said that whichever party gets the most votes and the most seats, if not an absolute majority, has the first right to seek to govern either on its own or by reaching out to other parties. And I stick to that view. It seems this morning that it's the Conservative Party that has more votes and more seats, though not an absolute majority. And that is why I think it is now for the Conservative Party to prove that it is capable of seeking to govern in the national interest. At the same time, this election campaign has made it abundantly clear that our electoral system is broken. It simply doesn't reflect the hopes and aspirations of the British people. So I repeat again my assurance that whatever happens in the coming hours and days and weeks, I will continue to argue not only for the greater fairness in British society, not only the greater responsibility in economic policymaking, but also for the extensive real reforms that we need to fix our broken political system. Thank you very, very much.